All right. Good morning. So good to see so many of you here. I saw you upstairs for singing already this morning. Lots of you. And again, we get to see each other. Oh, yes. What is in the bag today? All right. Look what I brought with me. <gasps> Who of you likes M&Ms? Oh, quite a few of you. All right. Okay. Who's favorite color so hands down whose favorite color is green Me. okay who would choose blue Me. okay anyone who picks out the browns to eat oh not as many okay yellow is yellow the f oh yes definitely which color didn't i say orange okay so i can tell that Different ones of you kind of you have a favorite color, right? In here. Um, let's get Colin. Can I get you to do something for me? Okay, come up here. Now you have to, I have to be able to trust you. So you need to close your eyes. Don't worry, there might be some extras for you guys if you just listen to the end, okay? So don't be too jealous of Colin yet. All right, I'm going to get Colin to do this one, but maybe Sadie will do good at this too. Actually, Sadie, can you keep doing that? Close your eyes. It's really tight. Can I pop? Can you pop it in your mouth with keeping your eyes closed? What color was it? Blue. Blue. Okay. Colin, and you guys, don't worry, you'll get some too. Okay, Colin, you really need to close your eyes tight. Don't open it. Okay. I want you to pop it in your mouth. No looking. Pop it in. Chew it up. What color was it? Wait. Come on. You had a... What? They all taste the same. They kind of do, do they, don't they? So even if your favorite ones are blue, probably they'd actually land up tasting the same because our favorite part is that chocolatey inside. Okay, M&Ms. We're going to keep them around. Don't worry are a little bit like people. People are kind of different on the inside, or on the outside, or I mean on the outside. So, oh boy, do I make the adults do this? I would like anyone who's wearing glasses to stand up. Oh, come on, adults. Yep, if you're wearing glasses, stand up. So there's usually a reason we need glasses, because our eyes work a little different. Awesome. Stand and sit down. All right. I would like anybody who has brown eyes to stand up. If you have brown eyes, you're maybe not sure, but if you have brown eyes, look around. Oh, not everyone's standing. Not everyone has brown eyes. All right. Have a seat. Okay. Um, how about stand up if you consider your hair blonde? So kind of a more lighter color, lighter. Okay, so look around. We have some different people standing up. All right, have a seat. So if we take a look. Oh, yeah. All right, so just like M&M's, if we look around our church, we all look pretty different. As a matter of fact, I would say totally different. And even maybe some of you know people who are twins. They look pretty close to alike. But usually there's something a little bit different about them. But even though we look different, 
We're all specially made. Now today, Pastor Mike's going to talk about Psalm 139, and I'm not sure which verses he picked out of there, but I chose one that kind of reminded me of the whole M&M's thing. So this is a verse from the Bible, and it says, I, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. So does it really matter if we look different from our friends or if we have blue eyes or brown eyes or does it really matter? Yeah, and so God made the insides of us the important part and made us each super, super special. So the next time you eat an M&M or if you eat an M&M now, I want you to think about how it doesn't really matter how we look or if we're different because God made each of us special and it's our insides that kind of are what count just like the yummy chocolate inside an M&M. So this will be a little tricky. I'm going to give you each just a couple M&Ms, maybe just three or four. So you have to be a little bit patient, right, because there's a bunch of you. So once you get your M&M, then just head back to your parents and thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you very much, Twyla. It's a, it's a good challenge for all of us. And I will be speaking on Psalm 139, so that works out very well. Look at this. There will not be children's church today, and so giving them candy and then having them go sit down, this is going to be a fantastic... <laughs> we're we're going to have a, perhaps a little more lively service than normal. But that's okay. Maybe you guys can all... We should hand out M&Ms to all the adults whose eyes are kind of starting to... Doze. <laughs> Thank you very much, Twyla. That was excellent. Before I begin, why don't we just uh, bow together in prayer? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that, uh, as, as Twyla brought up for the kids, God, that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. God, this morning, as we look into your word, may our eyes be open to hear what you have to say to us, our hearts willing to hear. God, I pray that by your spirit, you would move and impact us for your kingdom and your honor and your glory. God, I pray that the words I speak would be of you and everything that isn't would simply be forgotten. Thank you, God, for your presence here with us. We worship you and we want to listen to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Human biology is a fascinating subject. The way that people have studied and sought to understand the human body is, is truly amazing. We've, we've examined and we've classified, we've, we've tested and, and experimented in order to better understand how we work. As academic creatures, we've given names to different parts all the way down to microscopic levels, helping us to understand ourselves and give reason to why we are the way that we are. It's fascinating, or at least I think so. Maybe biology was boring to you and you prefer math or something, I don't know. Some of the earliest science I remember from school involved learning about the five senses. Can anyone name the five senses for me? Yes, go for it. Yep. Smell, yep. 
hearing, yep. Touch, taste. There we go. We got them. The five senses. These five basic classifications allow us to interact with the world around us. And I thought that I basically understood how they worked. I mean, they taught me in school, right? And I remember specifically when I was learning about taste and the tongue, I I found it fascinating that different parts of your tongue sense different tastes. Or so I thought, or was taught. I remember getting a picture of a tongue, kind of like this, and coloring different areas. Bitter, salty, sweet, sour. I, of course, stored that information way away, and, and I didn't think, didn't think I'd need to revisit it. it. It was explained well. It seemed to make sense. I understood taste, right? Period. Well, wouldn't you know it? It wasn't that long ago that I read an article that basically said that the whole taste zone thing is completely false. And we have Edwin G. Boring, I guess he's a little bit boring, to blame. According to the article, the human tongue is slightly more sensitive to some tastes in certain areas, and the key word here is slightly. However, a rigid map of these locations is almost impossible, despite what your grade school textbook had you believe. Instead, your tongue is a complex organ that's jam-packed with a bunch of different taste buds that are capable of picking up multiple flavors. But certain flavor receptors are not relegated to certain areas. Okay, glad, good. You know what? We cleared that up. It's been debunked. Sorry to burst your bubble for those of you who still thought that if you took a lemon and put it on the tip of your tongue, you wouldn't sense that it was sour. But wait. Apparently, there's more to be known about taste than the tongue. Now... For those of you who are into biology and science, maybe don't quote me on this because this science article that I read is only four days old, but it states this, the cells in your tongue seem to have the ability to smell. You heard that right. The cells in your tongue seem to have the ability to smell. Researchers already knew that smell and taste are deeply interlinked in the brain with smell providing most of the complex information with flavor. But a new paper published online on Tuesday, April 24th, in the journal Chemical Senses, shows that the two senses seem linked in the surface of the tongue as well. How did they figure this out, you may ask? Well, apparently, researchers in Philadelphia did this cool thing that they can do now, as they grew human taste cells in a lab. Those cells contain several important molecules, they studied them, that are already found in the olfactory cells, the cells found in your nasal passages that are responsible for sensing smells. And when they exposed the taste cells to odor molecules, the cells responded like olfactory cells do. So the findings suggest that human taste cells might be more complicated than scientists previously thought. Taste is a fairly straightforward sense which, which sorts chemicals into at least five categories. We, I learned four, but apparently sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami, or savory, is also uh, a new classification of taste that I didn't know about. And, and scientists thought that those simple categories of tastes were only integrated with smell, along with the input from other senses in your brain, 
But now, as of Tuesday apparently, scientists know that intermingling happens before the sensory input reaches your brain. So there you go. Now you know. The next time you want to stop and smell the flowers in your garden, get your tongue in there for the full experience. Or, you know, before you go on a date, Man, tough crowd. You guys all need some M&Ms. True or not, it's amazing how we keep on learning and discovering more about ourselves and about the world around us. We never seem to be done learning. We, we don't fully know ourselves. Despite the fact that we keep learning more and more about ourselves and the world around us, there is one who already knows all the things we have yet to discover. And in relationship with him, we can learn a lot more about ourselves and who we are in comparison to him. So let's continue our series in the book of Psalms and take a look at his word this morning as he speaks through a poem written by King David found in Psalm 139. Now, Psalm 139 is probably one of the most familiar and beautiful psalms found in the book, the song book of the Israelites. For those of you who are into literature, you'll notice the, the stylistic feature of Hebrew poetry here in which the author uses parallel lines repeat, repeating the same idea in two different ways. So you'll notice that. The rest of you can just enjoy Ignore the observation and, and take in the words. Uh, let me read it for you, though. Psalm 139 starts like this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become the night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day for darkness is as light to you. For you created me my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God? How vast is the sum of them? Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. And that's where we usually stop. And we will stop for now. Because it gets a little interesting from there. But don't worry, we'll, 
we'll get to the ending yet. What a, what a beautifully intimate piece of scripture, though, isn't it? We, we love that part about being knit together in our mother's womb. This idea that, that God holds us and, and has a plan for us. And before we were even born, these are incredibly comforting words. And yet too often, though, and I need to be careful because it is still good, but I think that I think this passage of Scripture is viewed from a me perspective. Too often, it, it furthers our narcissism as we read these words of David and, and we make them all about us and how wonderful we are. When in reality, if you read the passage, so much of it is meant to be about God. It's meant to be about how great He is. Yes, don't get me wrong, I agree with what Twyla presented this morning. There is comfort in those words because there is both sides to that coin. But I think sometimes we take the wrong focus. Let's go back to the beginning, though, of Psalm 139. David starts out saying, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. In fact, God, you know me so well that that you know when I sit, you know when I stand, you know where I'm going. You know what I'm thinking and what I'm going to say before I say it. David comes before God and, and he recognizes that he can't hide anything from him. He understands, as we should, that God knows who you really are. He is the one who knows you best because he is the one from whom All things began. In fact, God knows you better than you know yourself. Let that sink in for a moment. The God we serve knows you better than you know yourself. There's a a theological term for this that you may have heard. It's the word omniscience. It means that God is all-knowing. Thus, he knew that we'd discover that cells in our tongues respond to scent as well as taste from the beginning, if indeed the, uh, the researchers' observations are right. In Matthew 10, verse 30, Jesus reassures his disciples with these words. He's, he reminds them that even the number of, your, uh, of hairs on your head, uh, even the number of hairs on your head are numbered. Now, I may not know the number of hairs on my head, but at the rate things are going, I may soon be able to count them. You may ask, though, how, how is this possible? Not how is it possible that I'm balding. No. How is it possible that God can know all things? Or perhaps you struggle reconciling God's omniscience with the concept of free will. Because if God knows all things, how can we even have any choice? Is it possible? Well, first of all, I don't have all the answers to questions that have been debated by far more intelligent, philosophical, and theological minds than my own. That being said, though, I think if we keep reading, we may be able to grasp it, if only a little bit. In verse 5, David writes, you hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now, some have taken this little passage to, to mean that, we're, that God has given us this big hug, right? We're surrounded by God. But, but the word translated hemmed in here is, is actually, it's far more militaristic. 
It's like being surrounded in battle with no escape. So what does this mean? David expands on this further in verses 7 and 12. But, but before we get into the intensity of being hemmed in by an all-knowing God, I believe this speaks of another theological term. And it's the word omnipresence, which means that God is everywhere. According to the psalmist, God surrounds him behind and before. And, and this can be taken to mean that God exists simultaneously in the past, in the present, and in the future. God is everywhere. This concept helps me to understand God's omniscience. It's not as though God is learning. He is eternal, and thus it is possible for him to already know all things because he exists outside of time. There's a verse in 2 Peter, verse 3 to 8. Verse, 2 Peter 3, verse 8. It says this, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. He is not confined by time. He is as much here now as he is fully in the past and fully in the future. There, there is not more or less of him in any given place. Just as he does not know more or less of each of you. He knows all of you, including me. He knows it all completely. He is present. Isn't that kind of exactly what we try to attain in some ways? We're going back to the original sin of Adam and Eve, trying to be God. For all the things that it can be used for and, and for good, the internet and, and connectedness of society has, has given us ways in which we can dig up so much knowledge and in some ways we try to be a lot of times in two places at once. But at the end of the day, when we try to be present everywhere else, we find that we aren't present anywhere at all. We are not God and we need to stop trying to be. Right? Psalm 139 demonstrates how very different he is from us. When my finite mind tries to wrap itself around an infinite God, then I agree with the psalmist when he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain, or perhaps to use the already outdated slang, I just can't even. No. So thus far, Psalm 139 shows us that God is omniscient and he is omnipresent. Hopefully this puts us into the right perspective when we begin to ponder the implications of this and our response to this understanding of God. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I can tell you this much. When you start to ponder the implications of an all-knowing and ever-present God, there should be a healthy fear. There should be awe as you begin to realize the God that we're talking about here. 
David continues in verse 7, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? And this is where the psalm becomes actually a little bit fearful. As much as this psalm recognizes the comfort of being known by God, there is also an intense fear that comes with being fully known by God. If we're honest, we'd probably admit that that we don't actually want to be fully known. We want to be in control. This is why marriages struggle and intimacy fades because it's hard to let yourself be known. It's why kids often resent their parents because they know that often their mom or dad does know exactly what's best for them because they were the ones that watched and cradled them from the beginning and yet we resent being known. The truth is, we don't want to be known by God. Like David, when, when confronted, we look for a place to hide. It's scary. One pastor writes that part of the reason we killed Jesus is we couldn't stand the suffocating intimacy of our salvation. Come and see a man, the Samaritan woman said, who told me everything I have ever done. And not too many other people took her up on the offer. Jesus would look at a person and would stare into their soul, his eyes digging into them, excavating the deepest recesses of their being, seeing them through and through, and we can only take so much of that. Clarence Jordan, one of the founders of Habitat for Humanity, or he was influential in starting it, once said that as long as God was an idea an abstraction, a feeling, we were fine with God. Then Jesus showed up in the flesh, looking at us with those excavating eyes. God was suddenly as real and tangible on earth as in heaven, and we decided it wasn't a good place for God to be. It felt like there was a preacher at the barbershop. It felt like there was a nun at the bar or a monk at the bachelor party. So we said, Jesus, we have to watch ourselves too much around you. We feel hemmed in around you. Now you go back home where you belong and be a good God. And maybe we'll see you on a Sunday morning. And then we rolled the stone in front of the tomb. The message interprets David's words like this. If I climb to the sky, you're there. If I go underground, you're there. If I flew on the morning wings to the far western horizon, you'd find me in a minute. You're already there, waiting. When you're trying to hide your sin from an all-knowing God, it's a terrible thing. I remember when I was a kid singing the song, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. For your father up above, he's looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. That's relatively tame, but still just as frightening. Are we teaching our sons and daughters this reverence, this awe, and this fear of an all-knowing God? The next time you're alone on your computer, your phone, or whatever device deciding or perhaps battling what to watch, are you reminded of God's presence right there with you, all around you, right beside you? 
Galatians 4 verse 9 says this, But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? It is a fearful thing to be searched and be known by God. And yet, in that very same breath, it is the most wonderful and the most liberating thing in the world. You don't need to hide because you have nowhere to hide. You are accepted and you are loved intimately and completely. You will be searched. You are known. But His grace, by His grace, you are found to be a child of God. The one who knit you together in your mother's womb already knows your name. And so we get to verse 19, and, and suddenly we wonder, what's up? What can we learn from David's words here as he says in Psalm 139, verse 19, If only you, God, would slay the wicked. All of this and then that. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. At first glance, it's... It seems like a strange transition. Here we went from a God who knows everything about us and is everywhere to hatred and a call for death. But here's the thing. It's actually a very logical response. David's enemies were very literally trying to kill him. As he ponders who God is and stands in awe of him, David understands that no enemy can stand against God. He understands that, that he also doesn't stand a chance against God. And, and thus, he knows what he has to do. In response to a God who can't stand sin, he must also stand against sin. I certainly wouldn't want to stand with the enemies of God. No, I want to be on God's team. So what does that mean for us? Jesus was very clear that we are to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So what's our response? I think in light of Psalm 139, it's, it's good for us to be reminded of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And again, in Romans 8, verse 12, Paul reminds us, he says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh, 
to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. David ends the psalm the way that he started. Search me, God. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. Is your response to an awesome God the same as David's? Does it cause you to want the enemy, that is sin, to be put to death in your life? Are you willing to come before God and ask him to search you and reveal to you what's offensive to him? Earlier I said that God knows you better than you know yourself. This is important because it means that he can reveal and heal the sin and the darkness in your heart as you allow him to take control. Stop fighting against God and surrender. He's got you surrounded. I think a lot of times we struggle against sin because we try to do battle alone. We come up against our temptations against our enemy's sin, and we don't realize that God is right there with us, as he has always been. He's not far away, waiting for us to make a mistake and then zap us. No, he's right there in that moment, as he is in every moment, waiting for us to simply turn to him. It's not frightening. It's comforting to know that we are never alone. This morning I want to sing a song together with the worship team. I want to close. It, it talks about this. It's a, it's a new song, so hope you hope you can take in the words. The God who was and is and will be through it all. The God who in our trials stands with us in the fire. This is the God that David talks about in Psalm 139. May we cling to him and like David be able to say, I want an intimate relationship with you. I want you to search me and I want to be fully known. As we reflect on this psalm, I hope that you will find that it is good to be fully known and never alone. Amen.